0: So it's June 15, 2022, in Hillsborough, North Carolina, the Disappearance Day of Shamananda, and also reading from Shima Bhagavatam, Canto 10, chapter 37, verses 1 through 2. So we just recite responsibly verse one. Shri Suku Uvaccha He Shichu Kamsa Pramita Purar Mahim He Shichu Kamsa Puramita Purar pura pura Mahim Mahayomir Jarayan Manojava mano mano Sattava Dutta Bravimana Sankulam GURBAN NAVO KILA Shri 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 Goswami said Goswami said Keshi The demon name Keshi Two. And then, and then Kamsa Tharmita Kamsa Tharmita Kamsa, Kamsa NAVO with his, with his hooves, Mahi, Mahi. the earth, Here. Mahahaya, a huge horse, horse. near Janahaya, dripping apart, Manaha. Manaha. Manaha, like that of the mind, Jevah, with speed, Satav, by the hairs of his name, name. Abaduta, scattered. Abra, Abra, with the cows, Milana, and the airplanes of the demigods, Sankulam, Crowded, Purvan making, making Naha, the sky, sky Ishita, by his name, ishtar, Vishita, ishtar, frightened, Akilaha, Akilah, everyone, tongue, him, Shrasayantam, <laughs> <laughs> terrifying, terrifying. Bhagavan, the Supreme Lord, Swagopulam, is Coward Village, Village. Tadgeshi Tadi, by that name, Bala, Bala by the hairs of his tail, Vigurnita, shaken, Ambudam, the clouds, by that literally means the water holders. Adnanam himself, himself. Agel, or fight, fight. Mirgayan Tum, searching after, Agri coming forward, forward Upav called out, sama He Keshi,
1: Vyadan.
0: Roared. Roared. Mirgendravat. Mir-gen-dravat. Like, a lion. like a lion. So what's that? Deer. A deer. Or it can mean an, an, any animal. So then Indra. Mriga indra means Mirgendra. So okay. we mean the... King of beasts. The king of beasts. Beast. Yes, not like the king of beasts. BBT translation. Sugadeva Goswami said, The demon Keshi sent by Kamsa appeared in Raja as a great horse, running with speed of mind. He tore up the earth with his hooves. The hairs of his mane scattered the clouds and the demigod's airplanes throughout the sky, and he terrified everyone present with his loud name. Do you have a purport here? No. No. Okay, so in my computer database there's no purport, and... But there is purport here, so, and in my BBT Kindle book, there was no purport, but I do have a purport here, no purport here, so I don't know how here, on this database I have a BBT purport, but I do, so I'm going to read the purport right here. When the Supreme Personality Godhead saw how the demon was swiping his village of Gokula by nature terribly and shaking the clouds with his tail, the Lord came forward to meet him. Keishi was searching for Krishna to fight, so when the Lord stood before him and challenged him to approach, the horse responded by roaring like a lion. I are going to do Krishna book. So this is a Krishna book. After being instructed by Yamasa, the demon Keishi assumed the form of a terrible horse He entered the area of Radavana with the speed of the mind, his great mane flying and his hooves digging up the earth. He began to win and terrify the whole forest. Krishna saw that the demon was terrifying all the residents of Randavana with his wing and his tail wheeling in the sky like a great cloud. Krishna could understand that the horse was challenging him to fight. The Lord accepted this challenge and stood before the Kaishi demon calling him to fight. The horse ran towards Krishna making a horrible sound like a roaring lion. And we're going to read Sanatana Goswami's commentary too because it's similar, it's not exactly the same. But we're just going to read Sanatana Goswami's commentary it's a little longer. The demon was causing terror in Krishna's rajas, Swam Gokulam. Gokulam also means all the cows and cowherds. He came in the morning when the cows were grazing in Rindavana. This took place on the bank of the Yamuna, for later it is mentioned Bhagavan Api the Lord who tends the cows. This event is described by Vaishnava Payana. With the sound of a lion, angry Keshit, impelled by time, came to the crowded village one morning. Seeing him, all the cowards, along with the women and infants, fled. This description is scripture from another Kalpa, or later Keshi went to the bank and was still there. For it is said in the Rava there is a place hundred times purer than the Yanga where Keshi was killed. So, sure many got by the word swa his own indicates that he must protect Vokula since he was Bhagavan, the manifestor of unlimited powers. Swak can also mean his relatives, the cowards, and Gokula can mean the cows. The demon terrified Gokula by his name, or Krishna called him by name. Keep pursued Krishna for battle, Asha. Krishna thought of him as insignificant. Seeing the cowards terrified, Krishna came forward to pacify him. He went out of the village, hearing the words of the people, save us, save us. Krishna spoke in a voice deep as thunder. Clouds. do not fear, O oh cowards. Why do you have fear, Keshi? Because of the cannon has your courage disappeared? What is this wicked horse which has no strength? Is proud and gallops around, taking strength from the demons? So the bishop grunted. Arjuna says, seeing Keshi, the horse demon, attack him, Krishna attacked him, just as a cloud covers the moon. Seeing K.C. approach Krishna and thinking of Krishna as an ordinary person, the cowherd, thinking of his safety, said, Oh, Krishna, do not approach that wicked horse. You are a child and he is uncomfortable. He is Kamsa's original life heir in an external form. He is the best of the king of horses, incomparable in fighting. He causes fear in all armies, is the strongest of horses cannot be killed by any being and is the greatest sinner. Keshi is compared to the moon in Haramsu because he was white. He made a sound like a lion roaring or, or Krishna, a very strong Bhagavan roared. Shri Suk Uvasha Keshi Ju Ramsa Parham Koraya Mahim, Mahapaya Mir Jalayama Java Baham satam vādhūtā bravimāna-sankulam kuram navo he-shita-bhi-shita-kilā tantrasayantam bhagavān-sogokulam valave kornitam atmanam ajō mirgāyantam aguramir upam dhyālyat salabhyāna-dam mirgenvirvāt Suvide Goswami said, The demon sent by Kamsa appeared in Vajra as a great horse, running with the speed of the mind. He tore up the earth with his hooves, the hairs of his mane in the clouds, and the demigod's airplanes throughout the sky, and he terrified everyone present with his loud name. So Bhakti notice, Takura says that Keishi demon represents the feeling that I am a great devotee or spiritual master. So Keishi represents pride, that I don't need anybody but myself, Uh, that he traveled quickly by the speed of the mind, meant that he was traveling by his own power, and he was thinking, I am supreme. And it's, it's interesting, interesting that Sanat Goswami, so also Goswami, says that he was the personification of Kamsa's life heirs. Mm-hmm. So he was like the essence of a demon. So this is a big problem in this world, that we think we are great by our own power, uh, but actually our greatness doesn't come from our own power. So of course we have uh, the example of Hirani Kashiku, where, of course, it's ironic because Nireni got his power from Lord Brahma, but still he was thinking it's my power, I have the ability to perform these austerities. Nireni right? Kashyapu performed such great austerities that practically nobody else would do, that he kept his life air circulating within his bones even after all of his body was eaten. Uh, He didn't leave the body. He stayed with the body. And he was able to stand on his toes for a hundred celestial years. So he was thinking, I have great power. And he was thinking, I'm forcing Lord Brahma by not my power, I'm forcing Lord Brahma to give me power. And then later, of course, his power was superseded by that of his very young five year old boy, right? So he was. He was trying to kill his child, right? If this happened today, social services would remove the child from the home. hopefully. <laughs> so he was trying to kill him, he was trying to poison him, and put him in a pit of snakes, and he put him out in the cold uh, wind and storms, and had him thrown off cliffs and pierced with weapons, and Prahlad was unharmed. So he could see that Pralat's power was greater than his power. And so he says to Pralat, where do you get your power? And Prahlad Maharaj said to him, same place you, do. place you do, we're all getting our power from God. But this was very, this was like a big insult to Narendra sure. Kashuk. He felt very insulted by this, that I'm getting my power from God, that my power isn't on my own. And this is one of the hallmarks of the demons that they think I have my own power. I mean, this is Ishwaranamamboji. I am the controller. I mean, unlike Himani Kachipu, this is absurd because he got power from Lord Brahma. Uh, still, demons think like this, even through absurdity, even though they know that they are getting their power from so many others, that they're not truly independent in their power. Still, they believe like this. And we also may have some feeling like this. Right? That I have my own power, that I am independent. And one of the biggest fears that all of us struggle with is the fear of being dependent, isn't it? I remember my youngest son saying that what he remembers as the most difficult thing of of being a child was the powerlessness you have as a child. You can't decide, you know, really like what you want to eat, or where you want to go, or what time you go to bed. It's one of the reasons we all want to become adults. That we start thinking, oh, I can decide when I go to bed, and I can eat my cookies at the beginning of the meal if I want to. Okay. It's just this idea that I, I want to be the master. And we, we all are afraid that I'll have some accident or some disease, or just in the process of aging, where I'll become dependent. But you know, isn't it a fear like that? Somebody else will have to dress me and feed me and take me around and I won't be able to decide what I want to do. So this concept that I have my own power, and we may bring this into spiritual life as well. I mean, I definitely had this mood when I first came to the International Society for Christian Consciousness that I don't want to accept any authority. Of course, in those days, you know, in the 60s and 70s, that was the mood of the counterculture, right? Don't trust anyone over 30. Right? It was bumper, stickers, like that don't accept any authority and for sure that was one of my biggest concerns. That well if I join this movement that I'll be accepting authority. That somebody else will tell me how to think and what to do and how to dress and how to eat. I want to be independent. And it was interesting when I um, when I was visiting the temple in Chicago and I went, there, <laughs> I went there just to get some spiritual sky, incense and oils and it was the winter time these great big lace-up boots. So the the Ramacharya came to the door. He said, why don't you come in? I said, well, I want to take off my boots. Can you just get me some some incense? And then right there by the entrance to the temple, he talked to me for about two hours. And I was saying, you know, I I don't want to accept any authority. I want to find God on my own. And he said, but you're already accepting so many authorities. He said, what are you actually doing on your own? And then I... I felt like somebody had revealed my secret, you know. How did you know that I wasn't independent? How did you know that I was already accepting so many authorities? And he said, if you're already accepting authority, why not accept the best authority? You know, why not actually find a proper authority where you can surrender? But this mood, right? And so I, I agreed with him and I moved into the temple. But this mood of, I want to be my own authority, it it happens even in spiritual circles. It says every movie wants to have his own opinion. A person becomes great by putting forward a new theory. People don't become great just simply by being adherents of an existing theory. Isn't it? Everybody wants to come out with something new. You know, in the academic journals if you do some experiment and you come up with a new conclusion so you can get published in all the journals, but if other people then repeat your experiment, if they replicate your experiment and they come up with very similar results, the journals are not so interested in publishing that. They say, well, we already know that. It isn't something new. It isn't something special. And because of this prejudice in the scientific journals, we have a very serious problem in science. So as you may know, the scientific method is based on observation leading to hypothesis, leading to testing, then leading to a theory, and if it's tested enough, it leads to a law. But scientists recognize that each of us may have, we do have, some personal bias, and that the results we get in an experiment are influenced by our bias, how we set up the experiment, and so forth. And the way, therefore, to eliminate bias in science, at least the theory of how you eliminate bias in science, is you have as many scientists as possible test the same theory. And if many, many scientists, over a period of time, test the same theory and all come up with similar, statistically similar results, then it's considered a robust theory. Everybody remembers this? But the problem is there's no impetus to keep testing a theory because you're not likely to be published if you simply do what someone else has done and get the same result. So because there's no publishing impetus, and scientists want to be published as part of their career, therefore experiments are often not untested. And the main push... And the main push is to keep coming up with something new. And therefore, a lot of these so-called scientific theories are actually very shaky. Because one of the strongest pieces of evidence is that if you keep testing a theory, the results start diminishing. They start becoming statistically insignificant. And this is, this is very robust research, that if you test and test and test, your results start to disappear. The causation between one thing and another starts to disappear. And of course this is one of the reasons that the scientists can keep coming up with new theories, because the theories that are existing uh, have a lot of gaps in them. And the same thing tends to happen in spiritual circles. Like I knew of some people who would regularly travel around Raj trying to find new stories about Krishna that no one else had heard. So they could present something new. Oh, I will go and hear from that person, and I will hear something I had never heard before. Or to come up with some new theory about philosophy. Oh, I have studied this one verse of Jiva Swami and I have seen that the real meaning of this verse of Jiva Swami is different from that of all the our chariots and I have come up with a new uh, thing and the people get very excited. And of course we had people doing this in Mahabharu's time. People going to Mahabharu and saying, I have understood the Bhagavatam better than Shrihar Swami. Yes? I have come up with, it. I have superseded the previous acharyas and I have come up with my own better And Mahaprabhu says, if you're not faithful to the swami, swami sometimes women call their custom swami or master, then you're, you're unchaste. Uh, but this is a tendency. It's always a tendency, let me do something new, let me do something different, let me supersede my authorities, let me be independent. So, Keshe is personifying this mood. And and just to be very honest, we find this mood even in our Krishna movement. You know, I know better than Prabhupada. I'm going to go right to, you know, Lupa Goswami, I'm going to go right to Lupa Goswami, and I'm going to explain things differently. Uh, I'm going to go to the Sri I'm going explain things differently. Or, you know, I'm going to just have my own realization. I had one brother who started his own movement because he had some, his own realization about what we're seeing today. But this is actually demonic. To think like that. Rather, uh, we really, our greatness comes from being a follower. And this is, of course, counterintuitive. Like Jesus said, those who seek to find themselves will lose it, and those who seek to lose themselves for my sake will find themselves. So this is counterintuitive, that we become great by becoming very small. Who wants to be the servant of the servant? Like I often say, nobody wants to be a servant. That's why we have washing machines, right? Because nobody wants to be a servant. Dishwashers. We've tried to eliminate the servant class, you know, robotic factories. Because parents don't say to their children, please grow up and be a servant. You know, I'm going to come to America, I'm going to move to America, and have my children grow up in America from some impoverished country, so they can grow up to be a maid. Who says that? Nobody says that. So what does mean of being a servant of a servant, can you imagine if you're the maid's maid? You know, you watch the maid's children while she serves the rich people. Or you clean the toilet of the person who watches the maid's children while she serves the rich people? The servant of the servant of the servant? So who would want to be that? We all want to be the master. But the irony is that when you become the servant of the servant of the servant of the servant of the servant, of the servant, of the servant you become the greatest. And we see this, of course, with Srila Prabhupada. Prabhupada's mood was always, My greatness isn't following my spiritual master. And he had some godbrothers who didn't do that. He had some godbrothers who, as soon as Sananta Saraswati left the planet, they tried to take over the properties of the Gaudiya Math in court cases. And about one of the proper rights of Chitanya Charitamrita, he said, Krishna gave him the properties, but he didn't give him the mission. But Shiva Prabhupāda's mood is, my greatness comes by serving Śrīla Bhakti and my greatness comes by serving the disciples' succession. So why does that make one great? Because then, Krishna empowers that person. It's Krishna who's great. Isvāna Sādhu Bhutanam, he's the great one. And one becomes great if he's pleased with somebody and empowers them with his greatness. And that's actually how anyone becomes great. Like Rupa Ladmara said to Rani Kashi anyone's becoming great by like Krishna's power, you fool. You're never great on your own. Even if you think you've come up with a new theory, or a new philosophy, or a new understanding of Siddhanta, but that's what you can It all coming from Krishna. Prabhupada says in the story of Jambavan, everybody praises the brain of a scientist, but who is praising the person who made the brain of the scientist? So if whatever independent Greatness we have, seemingly independent greatness we have, is also coming from Christian. Where's Keishi getting his power? He's a shapeshifter demon, one of these demons who can change his shape, and he looks like a horse, but not an ordinary horse, and his hairs are making the clouds, and the demigod's airplanes. He's creating, like I was on a plane the other day, and there was some turbulence. Like I said, we can't serve the drinks now because of the turbulence. So Keishi was so big, that his hairs were causing turbulence in the dead of God's airplanes. But Krishna considered him insignificant. Where was he getting his power from, Krishna? It's like, why are you being afraid of this? So if one gets one's power from Krishna directly by being empowered by Krishna in his service, what power can he not have? Lord Brahmas has power to create the universe, but the universe is called his body. What power is not available to one on whom Krishna is pleased? And Krishna is pleased with the humble thought. So today is the disappearance day of Shamananda. And his, this is a very interesting story about Shamananda and his relationship with his guru and his being empowered by being humble. Uh, so Shamananda was, he was born to very great devotees and before his birth they had many children, many sons and daughters, all of whom had died young. And this is, we see this sometimes, like uh, with the Lord himself, like Mahaprabhu, where all of his sisters had died uh, shortly after their birth. And then of course the parents stayed there, or day and Vasudev, where all their children were killed. The parents then get very attached to this child. So Shamananda was called Dukida, he was called Misery, because his parents didn't want death to take him. So they figured if they called him Misery, then death would stay away. So as a very young child, he was very attached to, to Krishna. And he was very interested in Sri Taitanya Mahaprabhu. And he told his parents, you know, I, I just want to surrender my life to the Lord. And he said, I know who my guru is, it's Riddha So when he was very young, his parents allowed him to travel and take diksha from Vidyar Taitanya. And Vidyar Taitanya then said to him, I want you to study in Vrindavan under Jiva Goswami. So out of obedience to his spiritual master, he went to Vrindavan to study under Jiva Goswami, where he also met uh, Narottama Das and Sri Masacharya. They were all students under Jiva Goswami. And he asked Jeeva Goswami, what service can I do? And Jiva Goswami said, you can do some sweeping at safe lunch. So this is, uh, we see Maharaj Karthikarujra, he got the blessings of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu by sweeping in front of the Rath part. Now we in America may not think very much of this, uh, but in India where there's a, a very rigid caste system the idea is that only outcasts, only people outside of the four casts, can do something like cleaning the street. Yeah, They, they think, if, if you clean the street even one time, you've lost your cast. We've seen this, uh, things like cleaning the toilets, know, Like, in my mind, you, after you clean the toilet, you shower and you change your clothes, and then you're just as clean as you were before you clean the toilet. Uh, but with caste consciousness, once you clean the toilets, that's it, that's it. You've lost your caste permanently, you can never get it back. Like we have the story with Subhuti Roy, where Subhuti Roy was sprinkled with some water from a Muslim's pot. That's a long story, which I don't have time to tell. But from that, he was finished. He wasn't Hindu anymore now. It was very easy if you wanted to just convert people to Islam, you just walk around with the pot that you're a you know, Muslim, you've drunk water from your pot, and then you take the water and you just put it on everybody, and now they're Muslims. And that was one of the main ways that the uh, Muslim population increased in Bengal. So they are these kind of superstitions. You know, that you just you sweep the road one time and you lose your past. I mean, you could see it was based on something. It was based on the idea where Krishna says, don't do someone else's work. If you're a Satya, you don't act as a Vaisha. If you're Vaisha, don't act as a Brahman. If you're a rama, don't act as a sutra. Why should you not do someone else's work? Because it will damage you and it will damage society. But we don't have time to get into details on that. Uh, but Krishna says it's vayaraha, it's a vehicle of fear. So this concept that I have a particular nature, and therefore I have a Dharma connected with that nature, and therefore if I do someone else's work, I will damage myself and society, became so rigid as to mean that if I did something apparently associated with someone else's work, then I would be devastated, I would be ostracized from society, and deciding these things on the basis of birth, so having very rigid lines about what you could do and what you could not do on the basis of birth led to this sort of mentality. And therefore, this concept that I would sweep Seda was considered a, a very humbling position. Does everybody follow this? Yes? But that's what he was doing. He was sweeping Seda Now, if you've been to India, you know that the Rudavan area nowadays, not in Krishna's time, but nowadays it's a semi-desert. And everything is very dusty, yeah? So sweeping is... It's difficult, actually, like cleaning dust, but just sweeping up like the flower petals and any uh, rubbish and like that. So Shrinanda was sweeping Sadanand. He saw a beautiful piece of jewelry, an ankle bracelet. Oh, somebody, some woman has dropped her ankle bracelet here. I'll save it and give it to the owner. But it was particularly beautiful. It was striking. Right, so, this any high class person would do this. You find something, you save it and give it to the owner. Right? That's what you do. Like when I went through security, uh, there was some jewelry there, and as I went through, they were asking everybody, is this yours? Is this yours? So he's saving it, and then he's approached by one woman who says, Did you find it an ankle bracelet? Oh, yes. And she said, well, it belongs to a newly married girl who is staying at my house, please give it to me. He says, no, no I, I'll only give directly to the owner. So the Shri Radharani comes herself, and she says, this was my annual basis. Of course, when he sees Shri money, he understands who she is, and he's overwhelmed with ecstatic love. And she's so happy with him, she's so pleased with him, that she takes this ankle bracelet and presses it on his forehead and creates it a, a kind of tilak. You know, the specific kind of tilak we wear, it indicates what line of, this, of, of what sampradaya we're in. It's not just a generic marking, uh, marking our body as a temple, but like we put a sign outside the temple. This kind of North Carolina, right? Okay? Otherwise, this is a building made of wood and bricks, like any other building. But we have, we're engaging in worshiping the Lord. Here we have a sign: this is a temple. So, if we use our body to worship the Lord and then we put on the tilak, it's a sign: this is a temple. But what kind of temple? A temple belonging to whom? So, just like if you go to Manipur, where they're they're in the line coming from the road to their tilak is much thinner like half the size. They're also Godis, but a little different. So Shamananda got this little different Atila, and Srimati Radharani said, that his Guru Riddhaita Chanda had named him Duki Krishna. his name was Duki, he called him Duki Krishna. and then Radharani said, now your name is Shamananda. So Shamananda went back to Jiva Goswami, and Jiva Goswami was like, what are you wearing on your forehead? And Shamananda told him the story. He said, Okay, we'll now call you Shavananda, but don't tell anybody else what happened. So, this got back to Vidar Chaitanya, who was furious. Why has my disciple changed his name in Tila? And he came and he was yelling at his disciple. At one point, he even started to hit him. And the devotees were like, You know, don't hit him. And then Shrimati Radharani appeared to him and said, What are you doing? I gave him this steel and I gave him this name. Of course, Shamananda later, after that, he traveled on the book distribution party, and his Guru Maharaj instructed him to preach throughout Prabhupada and he really revived Mahaprabhu's movement after the disappearance of the main personalities personality, which attend Mahaprabhu. But I thought what was interesting about Shamananda in regard to the first day of Valkeshi, is that he achieved greatness by being a humble follower. He became one of the greatest soldiers in Mahaprabhu's army. He was empowered to spread the teachings of Mahaprabhu throughout Orissa. But he did that by obedience to his gurus, by obedience to Rida Chaitanya, his shiksh guru, by obedience to Jiva Goswami, his Shikshaguru, guru, and by obedience to Srimati Radharani herself. Even if it was a great cost to him, actually, that he accepted this and he accepted this name. It, was, uh, it took some courage to uh, But he did that as a follower. So those who try to be independently powerful are, are simply destroyed. They become insignificant, and those who try to become insignificant followers of their Guru, they become actually great. Srila Prabhupada, key.